0: As I, was, as I was walking up, I knew he was going to do that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> First, let me start by saying good morning, and uh, I'm really thankful for the opportunity that I have to uh, to help preach and and to uh, fill the pulpit as much as the Lord allows me to. Um, My wife told me just one request. She goes, you get really nervous and you speak really quickly, so slow down. So if you guys hear me going really fast, just go like that. Um, And uh, real quick, um, I always get convicted when I have to preach and usually my conviction comes from the fact that the spiritual warfare is insane. It is so insane when it's time to preach and I always feel as if I don't preach enough for my uh pray enough for my uh, pastors. So as often as we should remember, we should be praying for our pastors. I know at least I was telling Pastor Doug this morning there was a couple times I was gonna text him, it's like I can't preach this week. But by God's grace I am here and we're gonna move forward. So if you will uh, open your Bibles to First Peter chapter one, verse one. And let me start with prayer Uh, so if you join me father god i thank you for this day lord god and father i thank you for the opportunity lord god father my biggest prayer lord god is that nerves will calm lord and that you will speak mightily lord god and father that hearts are open and minds are open and ears are open lord god to receive your word father god so father i pray that your will be done it's in jesus name that we pray amen so 1st uh, Peter. 1st uh, Peter was written by the Apostle uh, Peter around 60 AD to about 64 AD. Um, we know that the book of Mark was written by the eyewitness account of Peter, but that book was, ri- um, was written by Mark. Uh, Peter was a disciple of Jesus and he was the oldest of the ones that followed Jesus. You could say that he was the spokesman of the disciples. And we know that Christ changed his name from Peter uh, to Cephas, which is Greek for stone or rock. We also know that Peter was the one that denied Christ three three times uh, while Jesus was arrested and he was confronted by the young girl. But we also see that Christ restored Peter in John 21, 15 through 25. Uh, Peter went from a man who was a coward when confronted by this young girl to a man who was bold for Christ in Acts chapter two, uh, when he gave his first sermon and told the people to repent in the name of of Jesus and uh, 3,000 people were baptized. Then when we get to the book of first Peter, we see the fulfillment of John 21, where Christ tells Peter to take care of his sheep. And when we look at first Peter, we see the heart of a pastor We also see the heart of a pastor for others and his encouragement for them. He says in 1 Peter 5, uh, verses 1 through 2, So I exhort the elders among you as a follower, elder, witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Brothers and sisters, what an encouragement that is from a pastor who lived so long ago, and that 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 encouragement is a great reminder for us still to this day. Now, the background of First uh, Peter in the, in the background is basically Nero wanted to build Rome and make it bigger. On the night of July 19, 63 AD, a fire broke out amongst the shopping line in the uh, Circus Maximus. In Rome's, this is Rome's largest area that was confined by a bunch of people in the city where there was estimated 2 million, uh, 2 million people. Nero himself was not in this area, but yet this, this fire that broke out was no ordinary fire. The, rage, uh, the fire raged for six days before it got contained on the sixth day it actually reignited and it burned for another three days when the smoke cleared 10 of rome's 14 districts were ruined an 800 year old temple to jupiter was ruined and two-thirds of rome was destroyed and over a thousand people were killed by these fires the people of rome believed that it was Nero who had burned the city and, and because many had been killed, their resentment was so severe that Nero had to redirect the hostility. And Nero had chose uh, the scapegoat to be for the Roman citizens, Christians who were already hated because of their association with the Jews, who were seen as hostile to the Roman uh, culture. They were uh, spreading the gospel, they were speaking out about this temple, about their gods, and trying to show them who the one true real God is. So when this temple of Jupiter burned down, it was just easier to blame them for saying that they did not believe in their gods. Peter writes this letter to address uh, this area, to address the escalating persecution that had arrived. And the purpose of this letter was for them to be victorious in persecution. Nero publicly executed those who refused to renounce their faith. At times, Christians were pitted against savage animals such as dogs and gruesome displays of violence, bloodshed, and others were crucified. Another particular gruesome form of ex- um, execution was to burn Christians alive as human torches while he had these huge garden parties and invited people over He also threw them into the Colosseum and Peter writes to them not to lose hope, not to be bitter, and that they can trust the Lord in their persecution and that they can evangelize during their persecution. Now, Peter hits on three themes uh, in this and in first Peter, he hits on justification and sanctification and glorification. So first Peter, verse one and two. Peter, an apostle of Christ, to those whom are elect exiles of the dispensation in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethonia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter opens this letter with the most common Jewish way by using his name, showing that he's the one that wrote it. Uh, It's different from how we would write it. If I were to write to my wife, her name would be the first one on there. But Peter does this to show that he wrote it. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, it's interesting that when we truly dig into the text, he hits on the three aspects of this doctrine in his greeting. He will speak about himself being an apostle. He speaks of justification and he speaks on sanctification. One of these doctrines in in the opening is so small that if we're not careful, we can miss that. So let's start with the word apostle. An apostle was one that was handpicked by Christ himself. For one to be certified apostle, he had to be taught by Christ. He had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. And last they had to do miracles to prove their validation. He writes to this group of people that would be modern-day Turkey area and they were going through the persecution which would have made them exiles and their being exiles would be as, as well as a spiritual reference and Peter will hit on the doctrine of glorification in this book which is around chapter 3 all believers of every age are aliens in this world because our true and, ex, and eternal citizenship is in heaven and this is why he writes a letter to remind them of their justification sanctification and glorification now the word elect here it, it's in its original context is the eternal purpose of god the father the foreknowledge of god the father refers to of course to what we know beforehand the calvinist view which means that god knows everything namely that everything exists or takes place because of god's sovereign will So when Peter writes that God chose the readers of this letter according to his foreknowledge, he did not mean that God chose the elect because he knew beforehand that they would believe in the gospel and because they would believe in the gospel, he chose them. That would be what we would consider the Arminian view. If that were the case, if God were to look down the corridor of time, we would take a sovereign God and say that he had learned something. And if God looked down the corridor of time and learned something, here's what we do with God we actually make God a student of humans. And because if he studies humans, then he is not sovereign. So ultimately, man is to study who God is, not God study who we are. Now, now Peter, when he writes to them to encourage them about their election and their, their purpose in this area, it was also to remind them of this their purpose, their election in this area is for persecution. And he writes to show how to be victorious through this process, um, through this persecution, which they will be experiencing. And then Peter continues with the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus. So what is sanctification? Sanctification is the uh, progressive work of God and man that makes us more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. This is why it was easy for Nero to choose them as a scapegoat because they were living out the gospel. They were sharing the gospel. They were preaching the gospel. And then when we see, it says, when we look at the order of uh, salvation, sanctification almost definitely begins at regeneration. Morals change, things that we we did, we don't do, and the things that we didn't do we now do this is the mark of true repentance when we speak of obedience to Christ through the spirit once again Nero chose them because they would not denounce their faith in Christ and because they would not denounce their faith in Christ they were persecuted in vicious and horrible ways this is why once again i want to iterate this is why he chose them to be the scapegoats of this fire that broke out the Christians that were in this area at this time sharing with Christ were speaking out against these idols, against the Roman worship. This is why when we see sanctification of these Christians, because they were sharing the gospel. What they once knew, they no longer accept. And what others and want others to see is what we see as we look at our Savior in Christ. That Christ is the true and living King, true and living God i want to show you something in this passage it's really small i love what macarthur says macarthur says for the gentile he would have read over it but the jewish person would have picked up on it almost instantaneously for obedience to jesus christ for the sprinkling with his blood i have to be honest uh first peter is one of those books that i come back to quite a bit I've never really seen this until I was reading one of the books that Pastor Doug gave me, but a sprinkling of blood. What does the sprinkling of blood mean here? Because when we think of the sacrifice of Christ, it was not sprinkling of blood that he he did, but the sacrifice of Christ was pretty gruesome. Look at what Christ had to endure. He was flogged, he was whipped, he wore the crown of thorns. Mark says that the crown of thorns pierced his eyebrows he was hung on a cross. So there's no way that all this that was going on, there was a sprinkling of blood that was coming from Christ. So when we look at the Old Testament, the sprinkling of blood in the Old Testament was a common practice. And here are some instances where blood was sprinkled on people at uh, the, the establishment of Sinai or the old covenant. In Exodus 24, verses five through eight, it says that Moses took blood from an ox and put it on a basin he threw half of it on the altar and the other half he threw on his people this was to show that they were in God's covenant and God's people another instance that you see is that the ordination of Aaron and his sons when they became priests and then there was another one that when people had leprosy to purify them they they would take blood and they would sprinkle it on them as well to show their purification But when we look at the context of this sprinkling of blood, and especially when we look at justification, these three wouldn't uh, actually fit. And so we actually have to go, um, we have to do a little bit of research here. So if you go to Exodus 25 verses 21 and 22, It says, and you shall put the mercy seat at the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony and that I should give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, there on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So God had... To have a place so he could meet with his people. There was an instruction of what was to be done. There had to be a mercy seat. There had to be a place where him and his people can communicate. And in this communication. We see that God will speak to him And have them uh, give them things that they would have to do. Or these things that they would have to obey. So God has them erect this tabernacle. Tells them that this is where he's going to meet with them. He tells them that from... Uh, from here from the mercy seat he will give him these commandments and not just anyone here's the issue not just anyone can enter into this this place no man could appoint himself to this position no man can enter just because he wants to enter now the lord chose the uh the son aaron and his sons to be able to enter in this area if you go back i think it's in leviticus 14 They had these certain things about them. They couldn't be a dwarf. They couldn't have one leg longer than the other. They couldn't have like leprosy. They couldn't have uh, scars or or just anything that was physically wrong with them. But let's take our time. If you guys would join me in Leviticus 16. And we'll read to about 19. Leviticus 11, I'm sorry, Leviticus 16, 11 through 19. And thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall do for the ten of meetings which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. no one may enter into the tent of meetings from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bulls and some of the blood of the goats and put it on the horn of the altar. And then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his uh, with his. Finger seven times and cleanse it, concentrate it uh, for the cleaning of, uh, of the uncleanliness of the people. This reference of, of the sprinkling of blood is actually a reference to our great high priest. I believe it's one of the, um, the offices of Christ that we don't speak on much. I know when I started to study on this, Pastor Doug, I have to be honest, I, I geeked out. I read a lot of John Owens and uh, Beaky, and I was listening to R.C. Sproul. When we look at these verses, we see that the high priest had two responsibilities. That he had to present a bull as a sin offering for himself and for his house. Aaron, we also see that he, the other responsibility that he had was he had to make a um, a sacrifice for his people and as he made the sacrifice for his people he had to intercede he has to tell the iniquities and the sins of, of their people Aaron had to take a censer full of, of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and Aaron had to take two handfuls of sweet incense beat and small then bring it behind the veil after he entered behind the veil he would put the incense on the fire That incense would cover the mercy seat so that he wouldn't die. Then he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And the high priest, after sprinkling the blood on this mercy seat, would take the goat as a sin offering for his people. And as he was making atonement for the uncleanliness of of the people of Israel. While all this was going on, no one was allowed to go into this place. The priest then would take the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. And there was a specific way that we see that he tells us to do this for them to be able to go into this holy place. And after doing this, the priest would take the blood of the goat that was sacrificed for the sins offering behind the veil. So we look at all of these regulations and all of these rules. the high priest had to do before he can enter into the holy of holies the, the most holy place before he can make intercession for his people he had to make a sacrifice for himself he had to make a sacrifice for his house he had to cleanse the temple he had to cleanse the altar before he can lift up his people in prayer that god asked him to and finally after making atonement for the holy place in the Ten of meetings, Aaron would take this goat, present it alive. And then we see that Aaron would place the, both of his hands on his goat and confess his sins of, of the people, the iniquities, the transgressions, the whatever. And basically what we see here is the principle of atonement. See, when we look at the, the, uh, the, the, the priesthood of Aaron It's a foreshadowing of Christ's priestly work that would uh, consist of sacrifice and intercession. By the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat, the high priest made atonement for his sins and then was able to make a sin offering for his people. Now atonement refers to the forgiving or pardoning of sins in general or original sins, particularly through suffering death of these animals. God's wrath had to be satisfied. There had to be a sacrifice for His people to come into His presence. <clears throat> uh, Biki said said it this way: making atonement means to appease the wrath of God. Offended? Uh, I'm sorry. It's it's to appease the wrath of an offended party with a gift that that reflects an injustice done to a restored broken relationship. Because our relationship with Christ is broken, there had to be forgiveness. Now these animals would not be able to do, we'll see later on that these animals cannot do what God wanted. When we look at justification, we look at election, it's interesting about these high priests is as they would walk into these holy place that they would have the name of the 12 tribes inscribed on them. They would have them in these, these balls or these things right here. And then they would actually have another plate on top of them with the names of the 12 tribes as well inscribed on them. Moiter put it this way. He was known before the Lord, not by his name, but by their names. And their names here would be the names of the elect. He was responsible for securing the entrance into the Lord's presence. The high priest, as I've said, wore this, um, this this plate. When we look at when we look at all of this, and we see the wrath of God requires a sacrifice, and we see that it requires a priest who would have to meet the standards of God. Now, here's the issue: when we look at these sacrifices and we look at this atonement, Aaron and his sons would die. This is why this atonement has to be made every year. This priest setup that he has was a foreshadowing of seeing what Christ would do in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 or 27. For it was fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unsustained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his sins and then for those of his people since he did this once and for all when he offered himself up. We can see that the sacrifice of these animals did not satisfy the wrath of God. Hebrews 10.4 says, We also see that it is impossible for the blood of goats and, and bulls to take away sin. Because of these, uh, these priests who kept dying, because of this, these sacrifices that could not appease the wrath of God, He says that he will appoint his son. We see from Psalms chapter 10, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and would never change his mind. You are a priest forever at the order of Melchizedek. In these verses, uh, Christ was appointed by God to be the priest which will allow him access into the Holy of Holies, where our great high priest was able to offer himself up as propitiation. Try to say that really fast. (laughs) And I love this word, propitiation because for years I always thought that it was just a substitute, but it is, but there's so much more to it, right? When we look at the word of propitiation, it was that, yes, it was a substitute. He was the sacrifice, but the wrath of God was satisfied. All that the wrath of God wanted to make his relationship with man great again was poured out on him. And when we think of, of ourselves, and I was thinking about this yesterday, if god were to kill us for our sins we would never he would never be satisfied pouring his wrath out upon us this is why eternity in hell seems unending because even in eternity our sins could not be paid for by our own blood so christ perfected what the uh, aaron priesthood could not he perfected what the sacrifice of these animals could not Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 says he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of goats and cows, but the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption for the elect as Peter keeps hitting on. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15 says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called for those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from their transgressions committed under the first covenant. Also, Hebrews 9.21 makes reference of the sprinkling of blood on the tent for worship. So this sprinkling of blood, there is so much, right? And then the question is, I know you're sitting here, so what? <laughs> well, here's the so what. This atonement is the justification that we now sit under because of our great high priest. Because that Christ was able to live a perfect and sinless life, that he was able to offer himself up as a sacrifice. And not only was he able to offer himself up as a sacrifice, he was able to enter into the holy place. And as he enters into the holy place, he was able to tear tear the veil from top to bottom. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father who intercedes on our behalf. And so I love what Peter does here. I was listening, uh, you read these commentators and they were like, well, there's no way Peter could write this because he was old and he wasn't smart enough. I think what he does here is brilliant. The encouragement to remind people of their election and their sanctification and their justification. And not only that, but it was not by our works, but it was by his works. And because it was by his works, He speaks about glorification, which that will come in later chapters. But what a great reminder to those who have been persecuted for their belief in Christ, who are speaking out and living the gospel. Like I said, he doesn't hit on glorification now, but glorification, it is the final step in, in, in the order of salvation that applies to redemption. And what it really is, it's... It's that Christ will raise those who are dead, the believers who are dead, and reunite their souls and changing their bodies of believers who are already alive at his time of return. Giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrected bodies like his own. So when we looked at sanctification, we become more like Christ, but in glorification, we are returned to our natural state. The process of salvation starts with the foreknowledge of God choosing to to enter into relationship with the elect. We don't know why he chooses those who chooses, but we know that he chooses. And because he chooses, he is sovereign. And because of the relationship that we see, we are being sanctified. Once again, this is why it was so easy for Nero to choose these people as scapegoats because they were living out the gospel. They were talking about the one true living God. and then sanctification in itself is the spirit to obey Christ right we know that it says in scripture that we can't even say that Jesus Christ is Lord without the spirit and then ultimately our glorification is the final application of our joy but this is what come to mind when I was reading this right as I was reading first Peter and this is what kept coming to mind why didn't he just tell him to go home Right? Why didn't he just tell them to go home? What you guys are about to go through for the next four centuries is going to be the worst that you guys have ever gone through. I was thinking the other day, Pastor Jim, when we talked about the the 130 Nigerian Christians who were killed on Christmas day. And please, when I say this, by no means am I saying that it is okay. What happened to them? It was a horrible thing. Nobody should be slain for, for, for their beliefs in Christ. But a part of me rejoiced, and I'll tell you because they were faithful; they didn't denounce their 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 faith in Christ. And another part of me was also thinking, "This we have to pray harder for the Nigerian people." See, the hundred and thirty—like I said, it is gruesome—but they're with the Lord now, right? We still have a mission field in these Nigerian people. Is it not a wonder that the Nigerian uh, country is in the top five when we talk about persecuted uh, countries? And the way that they kill these Christians is so gruesome, but we have to be more diligently praying for these people. I found this the other day on, uh, I was looking up just some stuff on persecution. Though we don't agree with with uh, with our Catholic uh, brothers, but I think what happened here, there was so much grace and so much. There was a, a car bomb. There was a church that was bombed in 2012 in, in Egypt. Forty-four people were killed and, and 28 were injured. And this pastor takes his people out to to the uh, to the parking lot. It wasn't a year later it wasn't months later it wasn't weeks later it wasn't days later it was almost within five minutes within the hour he takes his congregation out and he steps out with this parking lot that was full of people and he gave the terrorists a three-point sermon that went viral worldwide and it was titled a message to those who kill us and his three points were simple but not cliche thank you we love you and we're praying for you And Father George says, thank you, because the terrorists gave the dead the honor to die as Christ died. Because the terrorists shortened the the victim's journey to their heavenly home. And because the terrorists allowed Christians to fulfill Christ's words in Luke 10 verse three, behold, I send you out as lambs among uh, wolves. And because the terrorist attacks made people mindful of this eternal destination, the church in fact now overflows with people who didn't ordinarily attend and then father george says we love you because even murderers and thieves love those whom love them but only followers of jesus are taught to love their enemies father george closed his message with this we're praying for you <clears throat> we're praying for you because if if reason if a terrorist could taste the love of jesus even one time, it would drive the hatred from their heart. And I was thinking, and not only, and, and we think about persecution, and we think about these brothers and sisters. And at the beginning of this year, I, I will be honest. Not not this year of 2025, but of, of 20, or 23, I'm sorry. But in 2023, we were praying for QB. It seems like every week she was sick. And then she would get better, and we would pray, and she would get better, and we would pray. And a part of me was like, why don't she just come home, right? If she's that sick, why don't she just come home? Brothers and sisters, here's why she can't come home. She has a purpose. She's exactly where the Lord wants her to be at this time, and he wants her in Africa with her husband. This is the same reason why Peter didn't tell them to come home. Think of our brother Peter who was crucified upside down and he looks over to his wife and says, remember the Lord. There's a reason and there's a purpose and persecution. The church, I believe believe it was Emperor Constantine who says we we cannot win against the Christians. The more that we persecute, the more that they grow. James chapter 1 says that various trials will come. So then the question again is, is, like I said, and he speaks about glorification again. So what is the application? I think it goes back to what Pastor Tom says. We have to treat everybody as if they've heard the gospel and as they've never heard the gospel. And this is why we should constantly be sharing the gospel. Not only do we share the gospel continuously, but brothers and sisters, persecution is coming. And as persecution is coming, we cannot be bitter. We cannot be resentful because we are on mission to share the gospel to even those who persecute us. I wanna close out this with a quote from an up and coming theologian. Uh, Our brother Titus once says, if we share the gospel and they walk away that is not persecution that's the job description so in that encouragement continue to share the gospel because persecution is coming let us pray father god we're so thankful for this day lord god and father we are thankful that you sent your son lord god to be the perpetuation lord god of of the atonement lord Father, that your wrath was poured out on him and paid the sins for those who are the elect, Lord God, and for those who would believe, Lord God, but not just for the time of Peter, but for those who continue to come, Lord God, and who continuously to believe. So, Father, my biggest prayer, Lord God, is that we continue to be faithful, that we continue to share the gospel, Lord God. But, Father, I ask that you be glorified in us, Lord God. It's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.